that we may be delivered from the disquietude of this world and may by faith behold the King in his beauty. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every once in a while, the Bible throws back the curtain and gives a preview, a teaser of the final scene of its amazing, breathtaking drama. In recent weeks, as we've followed the epistle readings in our lectionary, we've tracked in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's invitation for us to see our lives as an exodus out of the Egypt of slavery to sin at the price of Christ being set forth as a redemption price and then in union with him on a journey under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and with the persistent love of the Heavenly Father through the wilderness of this life, the sure goal of promised land glory awaiting us at the end. By a happy providence, we wind up at the close of that portion of Paul's letter to the Romans with his, his traveling companion's account, Luke, of the transfiguration of Jesus, for today is the feast of the transfiguration. And I want to offer three observations, one each from our scripture readings this morning. First, an observation from the Old Testament reading, Moses' foretaste. The original account of the Exodus had its own previews of future glory. After the crossing of the Red Sea and a short wilderness journey, God's people meet God on Mount Sinai. They receive his law in Exodus 20, and then Moses and 70 elders dine in God's very presence in Exodus 24. A hint of things to come. God's view of history has him and us together at celebratory feast. But first there's this little problem to contend with, the human heart and its inveterate rebelliousness. No sooner does God lay out specific instructions for how to, or how to adorn his tent of meeting, Exodus 25 through 31, than people decide they have better ideas. Thus, the golden calf of Exodus 32 and its severe consequences. Then in an exercise of extraordinary mercy, God responds to Moses' plea in chapter 34, verse 8, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Face to face with Moses the mediator the Lord gives his law a second time. The gracious revelation of his character and a telling description of human flourishing. In the Lord's and Moses' face-to-face encounter, as we read it today, the divine luminosity cannot help but at least temporarily make Moses' face to shine the phenomenon can only be thought of as an anticipation of what could happen to the whole of a human being 
if finally what David would later pray would indeed happen. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, Psalm 51.10. And what Ezekiel after him would prophesy, I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes, at which time the desolate land will become like the Garden of Eden, Ezekiel 36, 27, and 35. The temporary transformation of Moses' face on Mount Sinai is a foretaste of things to come for a redeemed humanity. A second observation comes from our gospel reading, Jesus and his exodus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Each notices different things. Only Luke notes the topic of the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Here's what they're talking about. Literally, they're talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke 9.31. Now, sure, the Greek word could be translated neutrally as departure, the way the NRSV translated as we heard it this morning. The word in the Greek is ex, which means out of, and hodos, which means way. So it's a way out, and it can be used in any, in any number of contexts. But really, this is Luke, the traveling companion of and conversation partner with Paul, the author of the letter to the Romans. He doesn't mean it neutrally. He's not using it casually without a view to the Bible's larger story and without a view to Paul's understanding of what in the world Jesus' ministry is all about. You see, in Jerusalem, a new exodus will begin. For there, Christ's death will take place, prompting Paul's Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Our sins have been borne away. Therefore, it's time to, it's time to, it's time to celebrate. Enjoy. In Jerusalem, a new exodus will begin, for there Christ's resurrection will take place. Having gone through the baptism of his death, Christ will rise in radiant glory, anticipated on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul will call him the last Adam who becomes life-giving spirit. And Paul, Luke's source of the story of Christ's transfiguration, I'm sure. Paul will write us into his story like little Moseses ourselves, face to face with God on the way to the promised land. Listen to the way he expresses himself in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
And a third observation from our epistle, Peter and the morning star. Peter realizes his days are numbered. Our passage today is really quite poignant. He's talking about his death that's right around the corner. After a time of following Jesus and ministering in his name, Peter's run up against his frailty. My time's up. Realizing it's not likely that he will escape Nero's peak, Nero's impetuosity, Nero's blame-shifting, Peter prepares his readers for his own departure. Oh, and by the way, um, ours is not the first generation of Christians who've had to deal with uh, authorities that seem to be operating out of peak impetuosity, blame-shifting, and operating in a general mode of chaos. That's when the church was born. That's when the church has its opportunity to shine the brightest. Nero's come, Nero's go. But Christ and Christ's kingdom remain. And on the eve of his martyrdom, Peter says he wants for his readers four things. One, the knowledge that the faith they have placed in his testimony about things he has seen and heard are not fantasies. The New Testament's voices can be genuinely trusted. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. Two, that if possible, the prophecies they find in their scriptures, essentially the Old Testament, which are still our scriptures, are even surer. You read and read and read the Old Testament stories, and they more and more bear themselves out as pointing to Jesus Christ. Maybe more about that another time. Third, what was revealed to Jesus, what was revealed to Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transformed before his eyes was the utter, did you notice this word, majesty, majesty of their Savior. And we could expand on this as well, just briefly. Incidentally, this is why our worship is the way it is. There are other ways of doing worship, but we seek for it to be characterized by the beauty of God's holiness the majesty of our Savior. And rather than some other legitimate biblical possibilities, and, and I've, it's been my joy and pleasure to, to lead worship in, in other settings where it's more his homeliness, his accessibility, his humility that are, that are valued. But here what we feel that God's called us to do is to focus on his wonder, his majesty, his glory, that we may be transformed into that same glory ourselves. And then the fourth thing that Peter wants us to notice is that the revelation of Jesus' majesty on that mount was but a preview of the majesty waiting you and me. Listen to what he says as Peter urges us to hold on, quote, until the day dawns 
and the morning star rises in your hearts. And of course, he's talking about the day when the Lord Jesus comes back and wraps everything up and ushers in a new day of new heavens and new earth. But that mention of morning star, I can't not think of Vincent van Gogh. You know that Vincent van Gogh felt himself to be a horrible failure his whole life. Tried to minister, felt like a failure. Tried to do art, felt like a failure. And he just poured his frustration out on his canvas. And towards the end of his life, his, he felt like his mind was falling apart and his body was falling apart. And he entered himself into an asylum. And in that asylum, during the last year of his life, he wrote about watching the stars from his bedroom window, noting especially how big the morning star Venus was that spring of 1889, the year before his death. And he wrote, hope is in the stars. And as he executed what would become perhaps his most iconic painting, The Starry Night, this one of the stars, he placed a large, torturously swirling cypress tree, usually thought of as a symbol of death, looming in the foreground on the left. And then he imagined in the distance a village, and then he made your eye focus on a church with a tall, straight, elongated steeple, seeming to me to be a counterpoise to the cypress, pointing straight upwards to the stars. Dominant among those stars, between the cypress and the steeple, is the morning star, Venus. The promise that morning is coming. In the end, you see, morning will come. Now, we may carry things through well or badly, faithfully and hopefully, or hedging our bets and cynically. But morning will come. Moses tasted it back in Exodus 34. He and Jesus and Elijah got to talk about it on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then even as he knew his journey in this life was ending, Peter sensed in his own heart and wished it for those who would remain. It gives me such great hope to know so many of you keep looking to the rise of the morning star and resist despair in all kinds of areas of your lives. In the political culture of our day, on the blogosphere where you try to represent hope, in the struggle to stand for justice in an unjust world, in your own temptations with desires about all kinds of things. 
in your resignation, many of you, to physical bodies that just aren't getting any stronger. And if they're growing, they're only growing in the wrong ways. Striving to know God's Word and follow it for your lives. Even when it's clear that its implications are, let's say, um, inconvenient. Pressing in to the hope of redemption and the final healing that this table represents. May we together, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may we be strengthened to follow him and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Amen.